Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. We'll wake you out of your stupor this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, we're going to go to a couple places this morning. Uh, we're going to first turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture there. And then we're going to go over to Genesis chapter 49. And so uh, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture there. And... Um, you know, I, I'm just going to continue a revival message this morning. Uh, since we're continuing revival, I'm just going to preach just a revival message this morning. I don't know who's here this morning, but somebody here this morning needs to hear this. I'm sure of it. And, uh, and so we're just going to just continue revival and have that this morning. You may have heard the story of a man who, who went away to college at Yale University. And uh, he had come home after his first semester he had come home to visit at his home church, and his pastor had asked him to say a few words. Well, the young man gets up, and, uh, and he does an acrostic of, for, the, for the University of Yale, for the word Yale. He does this acrostic. And, um, um, and so he speaks 45 minutes on each letter of the word Yale. And so after three hours... The pastor gets back up and he says, we're thankful for our brother, but we are more thankful that our brother did not attend the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. <laughs> and so, <laughs> how many know that had been a long service, Dr. Sean? That had been a long one. And uh, so, but as we continue these revival services, I have a difficult subject I want to preach on this morning. And... Um, and I, I want to I talk a little bit this morning. I want to preach a little bit on, uh, I want to preach on the judgment seat of Christ. I want to preach on the judgment seat of Christ. The trouble with preaching on the judgment seat of Christ is that we need to proceed um, our remarks uh, with a uh, very basic, what I would call hermeneutics, um, uh, and you say, well, what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the theory of methodology of interpretation of biblical texts. So before I talk about the judgment seat of Christ, I feel like I need to give a little basics, hermeneutics uh, to you this morning uh, before I dive into this passage. And um, one of the things that we have to do when studying the Word of God is that we have to make a difference where God makes a difference. And uh, I heard of a lady who had always lived in the city. All my farmers will like this this morning. Uh, who had always lived in the city, and she decided she was going to visit the country. And, uh, uh, and so she went out and visited the country, and while she was there... Um, she had made a comment that she had never seen a cow before. She had never saw a cow. So she goes out to the country and she sees this huge animal uh, in the field. And she says to this farmer, she says, how come this cow doesn't have any horns? And the farmer said back to her, looked at her and, and said, uh, he says, there's lots of reasons cows don't have horns. Sometimes it's, uh, it's congenital. They're born, they're born that way. Sometimes they're broken off or an accident. They lose them. 
Sometimes they're taken off as calves. And so there are many reasons why cows don't have horns. They're horns. But the farmer turned to her and said, but ma'am, the reason that this cow doesn't have horns is because it's not a cow, it's a horse. And so <laughs> that's what happens with so-called Bible interpretation um, when we don't make a difference where God makes a difference. And, uh, and, we, and by not doing that, we don't know the difference between a cow and a horse spiritually. And so... If we don't make a difference where God makes a difference, we kind of end up in left field somewhere. And um, there is a great deal of difference in the Bible between salvation and rewards. There's a difference in our standing with God and our state with God. There's a difference between Israel of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. There's a difference between the church and the kingdom. The kingdom, Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born into the kingdom. He went on to tell Nicodemus that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. The church, the Bible tells us that we are baptized into the church. We're baptized by one spirit. Are ye all baptized into the body? And so we learn to make a difference where God makes a difference. There are three basic lines of truth that run through the Bible. I had a seminary professor that taught a survey at both the Old and New Testament. And it was, and you know, Bible survey and seminary is kind of like, you know, it's it's kind of like kissing your sister. You know what I mean? It's uh, it's okay, you know, but it's not it's not it's not any thrill. And uh, and so he was he taught he taught he said there are three basic truths that run through the Bible, and I learned this and I followed this, and it became a principle of interpretation when I studied Scripture. He said there's salvation truth that runs through Scripture. There's church truth that runs through Scripture. And there is kingdom truth that runs through Scripture. And so I've always remembered that and used that as a baseline of interpretation whenever I would come to passages of Scripture where God would make a difference. And so some years ago... uh, we were living in Colonial Beach, Virginia. We were ready to move into a house that had um, that we were about. The house was in disrepair, but we were getting ready to move into it. So the owners was fixing it up uh, uh, to get it ready so that we could move in. And one of my friends that I had gone to church with was doing the electric in the house. I'm not a construction guy, so um, you know I can't run electric. I can't. You know, I can't even wire a lamp, you know. Uh, I'd, I'd end up, you know, blowing the house up or something. And, uh, but as I watched him, um, as I watched him wire, uh, I saw him run that conduit. He would run conduit, and then he would pull a very thick strand of wire through that conduit. 
And then he'd take that wire and he'd split that wire. And, um, and when he split that wire, uh, he would run that wire all the way to where every receptacle was going to be, where every plug-in was going to be, every light switch. And he'd pull that wire out and he'd loop it around and hold it there. And he'd come back and he'd split that wire. And when he split that wire, uh, sliced that wire open, there were three uh, wires inside there was a red one, a black one, and a white one. Now, some of y'all know this. <laughs> I'm not telling you anything different. But what I noticed is that he was careful, and when he connected and hooking up, that he always connected the white with the white, the red with the red, and the black with the black. And, uh, um, and I, I thought to myself, I thought, man, he didn't just say, it's just wire, I'll just hook it up any old way, right? How many know you just can't hook it up any old way? You run wire like that, you just can't. You can't connect white to red and black to white, and, and you, you know, you, you got to do it that way. And I thought to myself, what would happen if he just randomly hooked those wires up any way he wanted to? And I thought, what would happen if you turned the power on with all those wires hooked up differently like that? You know, uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have got the results that he got, right? Because white hooks up to white, red to red, and black to black. And so we must learn that there is a difference um, in these three great strands of truth that run through the Bible. And so they have to be connected right. So there's salvation truth. We all know, we see God has always intended men to be saved. Did you all know that? God has always intended men to be saved. The Bible says the Lord Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth. God had a plan of salvation thought out even in eternity, and he wrought it out in time. See, the Old Testament saints were saved on the same basis as we are this morning, through the shed blood of Christ, except they look forward by faith to the cross. We look back in faith to the cross. But it's, it's the same process. We're all born again through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's salvation truth this morning. That runs all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That one line of truth, the salvation truth that runs through the scripture. And then there's church truth. We don't see the church in the Old Testament. It was concealed in the Old Testament, but it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. The church was a secret in the heart and the mind of God. It wasn't revealed until the Lord Jesus began to speak about it, and all of a sudden it burst onto human history on the day of Pentecost, supernaturally injected into history. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, supernaturally injected into history. And we were church was supernaturally born and injected into history, but the church will also be supernaturally injected from out of history when the rapture comes and takes us away. And so we have the church truth. The church was concealed in the Old Testament and types, and shadows, and pictures. We see it throughout the Old Testament, through 
the brides of the Old Testament were pictures of the church. They were types and shadows. They were pictures for us. Not revealed there, but concealed there. And the church, church truth is this, is that there's absolutely something unique about the body of Christ. The church is unique. The fact that we have been baptized with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that the church is, is an institution on the earth that is unique. And I want to tell you, the church is the answer to the world. Y'all hear me this morning? The church is the answer to the world. The uniqueness of who we are as the body of Christ, we are the agent in which God is going to use in the last days to touch the world. God's not done with his church. He's not done using his church. He's not done using those that are in his church. He's just beginning. There's a uniqueness about the body of Christ. Why do you think it's so fought over and so in uh, such turmoil? And why do you think the enemy fights to keep people away from it? Why? Because there's a uniqueness about the church. God has put his thumbprint on the body of Christ. We are his agents for change. We are his agents for changing the world. And God wants to use the church. And so there's church truth. And then there's kingdom truth. God has always intended to set up a kingdom here on this earth. Matter of fact, when he created Adam, he told him, he said, let him have dominion. He gave him dominion, y'all. He didn't make him president of the Garden of Eden. He didn't make him a head counsel of the Garden of Eden. He gave Adam dominion over the whole earth. Why? Because God wanted to set his kingdom up. He crowned him, the scripture says, the writer of Hebrews says, that when God created Adam, that he crowned him with glory and honor. And of course, Adam surrendered his sovereignty to Satan, and we're all born in the wrong kingdom this morning. But God has to get us out of that kingdom into his kingdom in the process, he's setting up his kingdom on this planet. There are many parables in the book of Matthew, or many kingdom parables that have to do with the coming kingdom. In the book of Revelation, it says that they preach the grace of God. We preach we preach the gospel of the kingdom. And so we have to make a difference where God makes a difference. Where, where God makes a difference. But what happens is, is sometimes if we don't make a difference where God makes a difference in Scripture, we'll begin to muddle up truth. And truth will become muddled up. But there's kingdom truth this morning. And I want to share with you some kingdom truth. And so, I said all that at the risk of being disagreed with by somebody. 
I say it because the truth concerning the judgment seat of Christ is really a kingdom truth. The judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with our position in God's coming kingdom. And so I want to talk about it for just a few minutes this morning. I want to take you to an unusual passage of Scripture in a minute. But first of all, I'm going to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. The Bible tells us, let's actually begin in verse 9. It says, Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. How many want to be well-pleasing to the Savior this morning? Well-pleasing to God. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, that the terror of the Lord, that therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are, we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in our conscience. The Apostle Paul here is speaking about a day that's coming that every believer in this room we will all stand and have to give an account of all of our deeds, whether good or bad, before what is called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, some of you have never heard, may never have heard of the scripture being taught on the judgment seat of Christ. But we all are going to have to stand before God and give an account of our Christian walk with Him. Do we realize that this morning? Do we realize there's a day coming when we have to give a perfect account? of how we have lived this Christian life. That's why you and I can't just sit on a pew and do nothing. Because one day you'll be accounted for that. Every word, every deed, every attitude, every, everything that we have, we have done will be a given account to before God. Now, we all stand before this judgment seat, but... This is the judgment seat you want to stand before. You don't want to stand before the other one because there's another judgment seat that's coming and that judgment seat is not for believers, it's for unbelievers. And that judgment seat has nothing to do with rewards. That has to do with God's wrath. There's a day God will pour out his wrath on all sin and men will have to stand before God and give an account. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, and you've decided that I don't want nothing to do with God, I'm not going to live for God, you can't make me live for God. Well, you don't have to live for God this morning, but there's going to be a day when you stand before the great white throne judgment and give an account to Him. And we all know where that leads. And so I want to talk a little bit this morning You know, we must remember from the New Testament, every time Paul introduces the subject of the judgment seat of Christ, he surrounds it with uh, a word, I guess, to be used would be like the word uh, uh, solemnity, you know, where there's this uh, awareness. Uh, he, he, he uses it with caution. When he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, there's a, a solemnity about 
him introducing it, that, that it has to do with, with an awareness, a seriousness, in other words. Paul is serious when he introduces this subject. Knowing, therefore, that the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. This whole passage and subject is on the judgment seat of Christ. We have to remind Christians everything they have done since they had been saved will be tested by fire. As I studied the judgment seat of Christ, this is what I learned. As I've pastored for many years, this is what I've seen and this is what I've learned. I've noticed that it's possible to have a saved soul and a lost life. You hear what I'm saying this morning? To have a saved soul but a lost life. To be born again but yet their life not yielded to God is a life that's the Bible says that when we stand before God and give an account of this life the Bible says that everything that we've done will be presented and it says it'll be put to the fire It'll go up in smoke like wood, hay, and stubble. See, the question is not whether you're saved. Because the Bible says there'll be some who have been saved so by fire, as the scripture says. In other words, every deed will be judged. The fire of God will be put to it. And that which is eternal will remain. But that which in our lives are not, the scripture says it'll burn like wood, hay, and stubble before God. And so, there's a passage in the Old Testament. Turn with me to the Genesis chapter 49. I want to take you through and give you a picture, an Old Testament picture, of what this judgment seat might look like someday when we stand before God. Because see, here's what, here's what I feel this morning. And this is what I felt for months and, and for a while about the church. The body of Christ needs to be stirred this morning. We need to come to the realization that God didn't just save us just to take up space. God saved us for a purpose. He saved us to be active. He saved us to be Listen, Paul said it like this. He said that we might persuade men. You were born again not just to be silent with your faith. You were born again so that you might share your faith with others, that you might serve God's kingdom, that you might give your life away to him as we sang that song this morning. If you're born again this morning, your life is not your own. I don't know if y'all with me or not, but I'm just here to tell you the church needs to be stirred. We have gotten lazy. We've gotten we've had we've got apathy. We've lost our passion for the lost. 
We've lost our passion for the principles of godliness. We've lost our fight. We've lost our, we've lost our anointing. We've lost power. Because Jesus told them on the day of Pentecost, he said, when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you shall receive power to be my witnesses. I'm telling you, God's looking for some witnesses in this hour. Some people who are willing to walk with power and not be ashamed of the gospel and to have experiences like the Apostle Paul had where men who would cry out and say, what must I do to be saved? I'm not condemning you this morning. I'm just telling you, the church has got lazy. Are y'all with me this morning? Are you going to start throwing stuff at me? I was watching a football game last night, and uh, a coach on one of the teams had been a former coach at the university he was playing against. And when they came out, they started booing him. All right? But as the game got on, his new team was beating them pretty handedly. They started getting upset and they started throwing stuff at him because they didn't like the results. <laughs> so don't start throwing stuff this morning because I'll catch it and throw it right back. <laughs> but every once in a while, we need kingdom truth to get down in our spirit so that there can be a transformation in where we are. <laughs> Genesis chapter 49. You will find that the Holy Spirit has painted for us a picture of the judgment seat of Christ in this chapter. Genesis 49 is Jacob is the judgment seat of Jacob. It's Jacob calling all of his boys together on his deathbed. He calls all of them together and he begins to reward them and measure them and judge them for the life that they had lived so far. And so the question is, as they stand before Jacob, the question is not, are they a part of the family? The question is, how is their performance in the family? The judgment seat of Christ is not going to question your salvation, or you wouldn't be there. But the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with determining whether or not you're in God's family. The judgment seat of Christ has to do with your performance in the family. And we all must stand before so we, we look at this, and let's look at Genesis 49, and it begins, well, I'll just give you some background here. Jacob, Jacob, the old patriarch, he's 147 years old of age. He's on his deathbed. His favorite son, Joseph, is 56. His baby, Benjamin, is 39. For the last 17 years of his life, He's been a stranger in the land of Egypt. Although surrounded by the life of luxury and every evidence of wealth. When I look at this scene, I see in this scene 
that is set before us in this chapter that Jacob is in Joseph's mansion. Jacob lying there on his deathbed. And all of his sons have been summoned by Joseph. Now think of this scene. Here's Jacob laying on his deathbed. He's in this luxurious apartment in Joseph's palace, who is the vizier to Egypt at the time. For the last 17 years, Joseph has, has, or Jacob has been there, and he's on his deathbed, and Joseph summons all of his brothers to his father's bedside, just like many of you have been at the bedside of loved ones, as you know that they are getting close to passing. I've sat with many families that sat and waited on loved ones to pass away. As they, I thought to myself, as they shuffle into the room, here comes these boys, all of them come shuffling into this chamber, this apartment where Joseph is laying on his deathbed. They're all coming in, coming into that apartment awkwardly, obviously, walking in. And as you survey the room, and as you think about it, they come in, some are coughing and shuffling their feet, gazing in silence in the attention at the still form of the old man that's laying there in the bed, barely alive, measuring his breathing as he lays there. And all these boys begin to shuffle in awkwardly and surround that room and surround Jacob's bedside. Awkward scene. As these boys come in, the fierce Egyptian sun is setting westward. The evening shadow is lengthening, beginning to lengthening. They're standing there around his bed and gaze upon Jacob's rugged face. You could trace the story of his life in his countenance. The passion of his early years left a mark on his face. The craftiness and the cunning of his working years. Jacob's years have been etched into their testimony upon his face. The nobility and spirituality of his latter years after his wrestling with the angel added the lines of nobility to his countenance. I can see these boys as they stand there and stare at the old man. They look around at the luxurious apartment which which now he lies and perhaps think of the great contrast of this illustrious room that he's in that he's dying in with the, with, the, with the pilgrim's tent of goat hair, which, has, which was his long home for so long. I've been with families around deathbeds, and as they're there, it's all of a sudden, memories sometimes begin to well up, and they begin to talk about the past. Or they talk about the days when their family 
went through this or went through that or lived here or lived there. I'm sure the boys is there in that, in that palatial mansion where Jacob has spent the last years of his life to think back when he was, when he was a nomad that lived out of tents and when they were little. Strange thing happened to Jacob before he went down to Egypt. Something changed in his life. Actually, Jacob probably could have made millions in Egypt because of the way that he was, because of his contact with the most powerful man in Egypt. He could have cornered the cattle trade. He probably could have made as much money and had a palace as luxurious luxurious as Joseph. But ever since he had wrestled with the angel, he had been a broken man. God broke him in order to bless him. God broke him in order to bless him. And ever since the death of his beloved Rachel, he had been looking across Jordan the whole time. He had no more heart for what this world had to offer. And those boys stand and stare. And in the moment of that awkwardness of what's going on, as the Egyptian sun sets and they're in this Joseph's mansion and they've all gathered around, all of a sudden it was like there's this gush of life that broke out into Jacob and rose up into Jacob. I don't know about you, but I've seen many times on deathbeds where, where people would be at the point of death and all of a sudden there'd be this, this charge of energy and life that would come into them and they would rise up and seem to appear to be better only to succumb a few hours or days later. But as these boys stand around, all of a sudden there's this, there's this gush up from of life for this one final fling. And the old man sits upright in his bed. He reaches over and seeks a hold of his pilgrim staff. He whips his feet out of the bed and he sits on the edge of his bed. Jacob's about to take his last journey. But before he does, he has something to say. These boys quail at the fiery glance of the patriarch who has now become a prophet. And all of a sudden, Jacob, firing his eyes, he turns and he begins to look at his oldest son, Reuben. He begins to look Reuben in the eye. Then he moves from Reuben and he looks at Simeon and Levi and Judah. He goes all the way around the circle, even to finally Benjamin. All of a sudden, those boys in the room all of a sudden feel that their blood is running cold. Jacob surveys the room and looks at them with an intensity in his eyes. 
They had not just been summoned to watch their aging father die. They had been summoned to the judgment seat of Jacob. These boys had lived out their lives. They've done this and they've done that. They've done the other. Some good, some bad. They've made decisions. They've done their deeds. They've said their say. And now they're going to answer for it. There's no turning back. Too late to say, I'm sorry, or wish I hadn't done that. There's a sense of finality about this occasion. Not one of these boys will leave this room the same as they came in. Some will be rebuked. Some will be rewarded. There'll be tears. There'll be cheers. Some will leave with hopes dashed and shattered forever. Some will leave with their heads held high. The judgment of seed of Jacob is going to decide exactly what place each of these boys has in the coming Old Testament kingdom. You can see what Jacob, what he says to each of these boys, and you can follow these boys all through the Old Testament, and you can see what he, what he gives them and what he states about them is played out through all of the Old Testament. He now no longer is their father, but he sits as a prophet in front of them. It happens throughout the whole historical book of the Old Testament has, has now has its roots in Genesis 49. So I'd like to introduce just a couple of these boys to you this morning. We can't go through all of them, but I want to introduce a couple of them to you this morning here in Genesis 49. I want you to meet the man who was crushed at the judgment seat. The one who was crushed at the judgment seat. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 1, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And in verse 3, he calls Reuben, and this is what he says to Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Jacob is recounting, he's making recognition of Reuben's position in the family. His position is... As the oldest, he didn't choose it for himself. God chose it in his sovereignty and his wisdom. There were certain privileges and rights that came with the firstborn. With the firstborn, there came the, the property right, a double share of the property. There was the priestly right to be leader and priest over the family. There was the Progenerous right that, that through the firstborn would be a direct descendant into the line of Christ himself. It's no light thing. 
And so Jacob, he announces Reuben's position, which is he's the firstborn. He had nothing to do with that. He didn't choose to be born into this family. Just like you and I are not chosen or asked to be born into the families we're born into or to be born where we're born or to the families that we have chosen to be born into. That's, that's, that was sovereign. That's God's hand. God chose that. God chose the family which you were born into and the life that you were born into. That was all in God's hand. And so just like Reuben... He decides our position in the family. God decides our position in the family. When we think about that spiritually, God is the one who decides our, our position in our spiritual family. God does that. God is the one who gives you and I gifts to serve, the gifts that we're going to have in the family. God's the one that decides Who's an evangelist? Who's a pastor? Who's a teacher? Right? God chooses the gift that he puts on your life. Hospitality or, or the gift that he gives you to serve the kingdom. You have nothing to do with that. God determines that. And so Reuben, as he goes through and he begins, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might. And the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. I can see Reuben now as Jacob is going through all of this. He must have set up straight and tall. He thought, man, now the good stuff is getting ready to come. As he sat there and Jacob began to announce his position in the family, which he had nothing to do with. See, that was just his position. See, what's being decided at the judgment seat of Jacob is not the position in the family, but one's performance in the family. What is being decided at this judgment seat of Jacob, which will also be decided at the judgment seat of Christ, in this, in this, is this principle. Performance in the family determines position in the kingdom. As they had performed, Jacob will tell them their position in the kingdom. What will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ is not whether or not you're in the family, but it will determine your position in the coming kingdom that God will set up into the millennial kingdom when we will reign and rule with him. Your performance in this family will determine where and how you will serve in the coming kingdom. There's a lot at stake in our lives. There's things we don't have control of. The gifts we were given where we live, family, there's a lot of things, but there are things we do have control of. We do have control of how we serve in God's kingdom, how we serve him, and how we, how we live out our Christian life 
and how we do service and how we perform in the family because that one day we have to stand before God and give an account for. He looks at Reuben in verse 4. Now here it comes. He says, Reuben, unstable is water. You shall not excel. Unstable is water. You shall not excel. See, it's funny. Water always finds its lowest level and continues down and down until it can't go down anymore. What Jacob was saying is, Reuben, your life has been as unstable as water is unstable. Water will seek its lowest level. Left alone, it will go down and down as far as it can go. That is the picture of Reuben's life. When Reuben should have been conquering mountains, he drifted lower and lower. When he should have been out conquering lands and taking possession of everything that God had for him, he kept sinking lower and lower. And I'm telling you, there'll be those who will be crushed at the judgment seat one day, Joe, when they stand before God and they realize that all that God gave them, all that God put in their possession, they just left for naught and they were as unstable as water was. Instead of being an overcomer and a victor and taking territory in this world through the kingdom of God, they will find themselves sinking lower and lower in their Christian life. Y'all with me this morning? <laughs> then all of a sudden the bombshell comes and it explodes. The dying Jacob turns those burning eyes upon Reuben in verse 4. You are unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. And then he makes this statement. He said, and he went up to my couch. Whoo. See, what Reuben had done forty years earlier, Reuben committed incest with Jacob's wife, Bilhad. Right around the time his beloved Rachel died, Bilhad was the was the maid wife of Rachel and also the maidservant of Rachel and the wife of Jacob. The time Rachel would have died, Bilhad would have been someone Jacob would have leaned on because she was closest to Rachel. It was during this time that Reuben had gone in and forced her to have relationship with him. And for 40 years, Jacob said nothing. I would imagine that after 40 years, Reuben probably thought that he got away with it. 
Maybe you think you got away with it this morning. But you haven't got away with it, you know. It happened 40 years ago. 23 years in Canaan, 17 years in Egypt. Jacob waited 40 years for Reuben to come and say something and confess to his father what he had done. Listen, the judgment seat of Christ, y'all, is not, it's not a Sunday school picnic. It's a real thing. And at the judgment seat of Jacob, there'll be revealed everything that we have hidden, everything that we have done, that we have swept under the rug, that we have not confessed or brought to Christ. It all will be brought out and exposed at the judgment seat. And like Reuben, there may be those who are crushed at the judgment seat. It's a real thing. Let me introduce you to the second individual. I want you to meet the men who were condemned at the judgment seat. Jacob turned his all-seeing eye. Now, from Reuben, now he took his all-seeing eye now and it's on Simeon and Levi, his two sons, Simeon and Levi. They must have cowered with guilty conscience. Verse 6 and 7 tells us this. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united with their assembly. Or verse 5, I'm sorry. Simeon and Levi are brethren, are brothers. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them and Jacob and scatter them throughout all of Israel. See, Simeon and Levi, what they did was not something that was done in a back room or in a bedroom or in a secret chamber. What they did, their cruelty was done out front where every eye could see. See, it's evident to these boys that this is not a mercy seat. This is a judgment seat. And when we get to the judgment seat, it's not a mercy seat. And we all will stand at the judgment seat. But you know what? This morning, thank God there is a mercy seat this morning. Hallelujah.
If there's anyone here this morning, you have something that is on your conscience, you can, you can find a way to the mercy seat this morning and put it under the blood. Thank God on this side, we're able to find a place where we can bring these things to the Lord and leave them there. How many are thankful this morning your sin has been put under the blood of Jesus this morning? Huh? How many are thankful we can be washed in the blood this morning? We can be cleansed and made whole. Our conscience can be cleared this morning. We can walk in newness of life. And everything that we've ever done that has been displeasing to God, we can bring to the altar and leave it there and be forgotten. He will cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. The scripture said they were brethren. Well, that was settled in heaven. It has nothing to do with whether or not the judgment seat has nothing to do with whether or not you're in the family. It's not in question. But the events that happened with Simeon and Levi was that one day their sister, Diana, had been down in the village of Shechem. And while she was down there, she ran into a young man. And uh, she made nices with him, and, and he violated her. She came back home and she ran into Jacob's tent and shared with her mother what had happened. And she called Jacob and shared with Jacob what had happened. And, and the king of Shechem had violated Diana, or the prince of Shechem had violated, had violated Diana. And so Jacob went to deal with it and the king was receiving and, and offered to make restitution the young man offered to marry her. And so Simeon and Levi came up with this plan that they told all of the Shechemites that if all the men would be circumcised, all could be forgiven. And so they went down and all the men were circumcised. And the scripture says that while they had been circumcised a day or two, and the Bible says that as they were in pain, where they didn't have the ability to fight, Levi and Simeon had taken some down and they slew them all. They slew and slaughtered every last one of them. Jacob didn't tell them to do it. They did it on their own. They did it on their own. Filled with rage, they made a deceitful agreement with them and swept down and massacred all of them. They swarmed deceitfully. They sinned directfully. And they slew them diabolically. Those two boys acted worse than the unsaved. Have you ever met Christians like that? That sin remained unjudged for years. Jacob waited, but all they did was justify themselves to the fact that they had the right to do it. I'm telling you, there are going to be people who stand at the judgment seat and will be condemned before Christ for some of the deeds that they have done as believers. The acts of cruelty, 
lack of mercy and lack of, of grace that they have shown upon believers and have struck out and raced out and put their hand on believers' lives in cruelty and unkindness. Let's just face it this morning, folks. There are some mean Christians out there. I've met a couple <laughs> face to face. The truth is, Jacob waited, but all they did was justify. And that's what happens. Sometimes they justify their actions. Instead of realizing that they didn't act by the Holy Spirit, they acted out of cruelty. They acted out of their own ambition. Their intent was to hurt. Their intent was to destroy. Their intent was to disrupt and destroy Three, there'll be those who will be crowned at the judgment seat. I know I've got to finish. I want you to meet the man that was crowned at the judgment seat. This is the main part that I want to get to this morning. The Bible, in verse 8 says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The sepulcher shall not depart from Judah. Here Judah... As Reuben and Simeon and Levi was judged, and now Jacob came to Judah. If anybody in the room, if anybody in the room was probably sitting there with terror, it had to be Judah. Here Judah thought he had imagined that when he was judging his brothers, he probably thought to himself, What's he going to say to me? Judah had reason to be worried. What's he going to say to me about that pagan woman that I married against my father's wishes? What's he going to say to me about that directful failure as a father? Where my sons died under the judgment of God. What's he going to say to me about the dreadful business that I had with Tamar? What's Jacob going to say to me about my worldliness and my carnality? About my wretched choice of unsaved friends? All of this was going through Judah's mind. What was he going to say to me about my part in selling Joseph? All of this was probably running through Judah's mind. And the truth is, the glorious thing is that Jacob said nothing of the things of what happened in Judah's life because Judah had taken and put things right. See, the judgment seat of Jacob was not to rake up forgiven sin. There was a day in the life of Judah when he came and he bowed down before Joseph and he asked Joseph for forgiveness. He asked Joseph to forgive him 
and he cried and he poured out his heart. He poured out his heart and contrition and all that shame and all of that sin he had, he, and all the things he had done. All had been forgiven. And Joseph talked to the father about it. See, that's why we have a mercy seat. Listen to me this morning. What you take to the mercy seat will never show up at the judgment seat. Isn't that good? He said nothing to Judah. Judah was the worst of them all. But because he had taken him to the mercy seat, it was never going to show up at the judgment seat. Thank God this morning that all that I've taken to the mercy seat will never, ever show up again at the judgment seat. Hallelujah. That's good news this morning. That's good news for all of us this morning. <laughs> Hallelujah. Joseph went and talked to the Father. <laughs> I said, Joseph went and talked to the Father. Pastor Adam, would you come? Joseph went and talked to the Father. Who is our advocate to the Father? Jesus himself. Joseph was a type of Christ. Hallelujah. Whew. I don't know if you get it. Listen, God went on to talk about the lion, the Lord, the land. He talked about how he washed his garments in wine and made them clear in the blood of the grape. He went on to praise and one praise after another for Judah. Thank God. All through there, they're, they go through all 12 of those boys and they have to give an account of their life. He gets to Asher, and Asher is the unwanted son of the unwanted handmaiden of the unwanted wife. Asher was the nobody in the family. He was the least of all the, his brethren. He was least of them all. And Jacob said, Asher, you will, you will yield Royal dainties. Asher's bread shall make fat. In other words, you will yield. You're going to be able to have things that you give to the king. Asher was faithful. I'm sure he laid down at night and cried tears. God, I'm just a nobody. God, can you ever use me? I have no talent. I can't sing. I can't do this. I can't do all that. Listen, how many of y'all know God loves nobodies? I'd rather be a nobody in the kingdom of God than the prince in the courts of Pharaoh. I'd rather be a nobody in the kingdom of God than somebody in this world. Hallelujah. Woo! Asher, he said, you're going to have something that's going to minister to the king. Do you know that Asher, it was his tribe that raised up that became the guardians of the temple and the guardians of the city when David ruled? Glory, 
They became the warriors that protected the presence of the king. Hallelujah. You say, well, I'm a nobody. Well, at the judgment seat of Christ, you won't be a nobody. God loves nobodies. He's used nobodies and will continue to use nobodies. Stand with me, if you would, this morning as I close. There was one man that was very confident at the judgment seat. He came in with his head up, shoulders back. And the only reason we know he was confident at the judgment seat is because Genesis 48 comes before Genesis 49. Joseph came in confident at the judgment seat. Jacob had called him in and blessed his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph was the one who got the double portion. And I believe he was given a double portion because Joseph could always look back in his life and he could say these words. I did everything to please the Father. That's why I come to the New Testament and see the Apostle Paul And he writes, Timothy, this is what he says to his son Timothy. This is the message for you this morning. He said, I'm ready to be offered. I have fought a good fight. As a Roman soldier, I have fought a good fight. As an athlete, I have finished my course. As a prophet, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I really believe Paul could hold his head up high. See, why we don't learn as Christians and of the family of God this lesson. While God gives unmerited salvation, he never gives unmerited rewards. They are earned. And though we have unmerited salvation this morning, he never gives unmerited rewards. Paul comes before Christ, I'm sure he'll say, Well done, Paul. Well won, Paul. As a soldier you have been. Well run, Paul. As an athlete you have been. Well done, Paul. What a prophet you have been. My question for you this morning, as we close and prepare to leave this morning, Are you ready for the judgment seat of Christ in your life? Are you here and ready to stand before God and give an account of your Christian life? Have you made sure that there's no hidden sin in your life that 
you've never brought to the mercy seat and never turned over to the blood and put under the blood of Jesus, that there's nothing in your life that would keep you Or can we stand like Joseph and say, I've lived my life to please the Father. Hopefully you can this morning. I know this was a hard message this morning. But I'm telling you, we're living in an hour when the church has forgotten that our lives matter. Your service matters. Your service makes a difference in the kingdom of God. And we can't just not do nothing anymore. Let me just say this. You're not going to be able to sit around here because I'm going to preach this and preach this. I'm going to push on you and push on you and push on you until God moves you out of where you are into doing something for the kingdom of God. I was so blessed Friday night All week we had these four ladies that were coming to the service. They're from Terre Haute, Indiana. They had come down to visit and they happened to walk into Jen and Grant's store downtown. And uh, I love it. Jen has a store. They have the Redeeming Grace store down there. Y'all should visit that. Y'all should buy their product. Go down there and buy something. Buy it. Buy it. Make sure we bless them. They open their business, and everybody that walks in there, they don't leave unless Jen prays for them. (laughs) I mean, she prays for them. She just, and even if they don't want her to, she will anyway, because I know her. She prays for them. I thank God for the Christian businesses that God has brought into our city that are owned by Christians. Thank God for Will. And his business. And what he does in the kingdom. And any of you that have a business. That you'll use it for his kingdom. But they came down there and Jen prayed with them. They ended up coming down and showing up at the tent meeting. Almost every night. A few nights, I know. They were here Friday night and they got blessed. They got touched. How many know the Holy Ghost will rest you wherever you are? I mean... That's how God works. It's the king. Truth is, the question this morning may not be whether or not you're in the family. The question may be, what is your performance in the family this morning? Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.